My name is Scott Harris. Welcome to the Dairy Dive. Today we're going to talk about constant change. Buckle up because we're diving deep. First of all, we hope we can try to educate you so you learn just a little bit, a little bit. My whole life's been dairy farming. Some days you wonder why you ever milk cows. It's kind of just in the blood around here. I don't know what it is, but we like livestock. Buckle up. The Dairy Dive starts now. So today's format's going to be a little different than uh, what you're used to if you're a regular listener of the Dairy Dive podcast. If this is your first one, go back and check out some of the other ones because the format's quite a bit different, but they're all very good. But uh, we're going to do things a little different. Normally, I would uh, a lot of times would have another would have a guest and would ask them questions about a particular topic or maybe an article they'd written or something along those lines and kind of dive really deep into one of those things. Well, today we were kind of thinking, there, and you know, it's kind of a twofold situation. Number one is I've been in the middle of a very heavy travel season, and so being able to get people lined up has been a little more of a challenge um, in this time of year. But number two is also the week we're recording this uh, happens to be the same week as the World Ag Expo in Tulare County and the um, Louisville Farm Show in Louisville. And so that kind of took uh, some of our potential guests out of uh, pocket for us to be able to use uh, this week. So so as we begin to think about, you know, well, what do we want to do? I did hit me. You know, I've seen a lot of change in this industry. You know, start thinking about, you know, Louisville Farm Show. And I remember going to that the very first time, um, you know, that I would have been in 2012. Uh, I started in the business in 2011. And so just begin to think about probably how much that show's changed over the years, but then just begin to think about how much the industry has changed over the years. And, uh, you know, I have nine years of experience, just over nine years of experience uh, with Master's Choice. Uh, That brand was owned with that company uh, before it was uh, sold. Um, And then uh, two and a half years working toward uh, my third year uh, with Rob Seco, but then also doing some work in between those two as well. And so almost 13 years of uh, experience in this industry at this point. And I can definitely tell you that I've seen a lot of change. And uh, it's some of it's been very good. Some of it I don't know that I would call good. But uh, just got to kind of roll with the punches. But overall, there's just been so much different uh, adaptation and, and kind of the way we look at things has changed. And technology that's available has changed. And there's just all kinds of stuff. And, you know, the the famous quote you know, the only constant is change. Uh, but I will say, and kind of where I would like to go uh, with this kind of the topic today, is that there is definitely two things that are not going to change. I just don't know how in the world they could change. Um, and that is your two biggest components of corn silage. And the two biggest components of any corn silage is going to be starch and fiber. I don't know how that's ever going to change. Now, how you capture those things, starch and fiber, can change and has changed uh, substantially over time. But those components themselves are never going to change. They're going to have to be there because they serve two major uh, purposes within the dairy diet. So starch, thinking about that, and starch is, I mean, my goodness, is what we look at and the things that we think about in relationship to starch has changed so much um, in my time in the industry. Um, but starch is your biggest driver behind milk volume. If you want high milk production, you have to have starch in your diet. 
you have to make sure you are having a good enough starch and it is a tremendous energy source it's the highest energy source that you can get um, if it's two times more digestible than fiber on average a, a starch component is going to be twice as digestible as any fiber component even good fiber and so you have to have it um, it's your biggest energy source it is um, something that needs to be examined though uh, I'm going to talk, after I get done talking a little bit about fiber, I'm going to talk about some of the different tests and how those have changed and not changed for a long time and, and the evaluation of that. But, we, you know, we, we think about starch from the component, two different components. One is just starch as an overall number. So I get my feed sample and I see starch and I, maybe it's 38%. I'm, I'm happy. Uh, I'm liking what I see. Maybe it's... 40, maybe it's 36. Well, it's not all starch we need to understand is created equal. So in other words, 36 on one variety may not be as digestible as 36 on a different variety uh, because it's all going to be about that for the best measure and the most common measure that you see and use is the in vitro seven-hour starch. So if you're looking at a feed test, again, that's your IVSD seven-hour oftentimes is what it says. And it in itself is not perfect either, but we'll talk about uh, those in a little more detail here toward little, after we go through fiber. But those are just examples of, you know, I mean, I can even remember first starting in the industry and uh, so many of the, the major companies um, at that time, you know, at that time it would have been, you know, more five majors that we were kind of working, um, you know, kind of fighting and kind of battling. And, and so many of them really gave, did not give a lot of credence uh, to this idea of starch digestibility. Uh, most of your ration softwares uh, weren't built for that. It was uh, it was just starch, and there was no component of evaluating, uh, you know, rumen starch and degradability and, and how much of that starch was actually just passing right through the animal and ending up in the manure. And, and now, you know, you fast forward to today, <clears throat> you have multiple farms, multiple dairies taking fecal starch samples, uh, measuring how much of that starch is getting lost. There's tons of articles out there, um, kind of expressing this idea of uh, how you know how starch digestibility factors in, and and this idea, especially how, depending on when how quickly you might have to feed your corn silage, um, how much of that uh, corn is actually going to be able to be utilized. Now that being said, of course, we can't necessarily just look at seven-hour starch. We do need total starch because, like I said, it is the biggest driver behind your milk production. And so when we think about the selection process and we begin to evaluate that, uh, you know, and I've got some questions that I'm going to give you at the end to think about, but I think the, the question you need to ask is, does that, is that getting evaluated? Is the company I'm working with actually evaluating when that starch is going to take effect? One easy way to look at this is, um, and I, uh, I'm going to steal this from our silage portfolio manager, Amy Hoy, uh, uses this example in her uh, uh, presentations that she does a lot. When you think about how a, a starch kernel is laid out, okay, the starch granule is, is going to be the starch that we, you know, we're trying to feed, and then your, your, what encapsulates that starch is actually called prolamine protein. And so imagine, if you will, you've got a bucket uh, I say bucket because I'm a big guy, bucket of popcorn, 
Okay, so you've got a bucket of popcorn that's already popped. It's in there. Right now you can grab every kernel easily and get access to that full, um, you know, full, full access to that popcorn. Now, if I was to take melted caramel sauce and lay it and put it in there and mix it all up, and as that caramel sauce hardens, it's now going to be a little more difficult for me to get actually get access to the kernel, right, to that actual uh, popcorn. And so it's going to be more delicious. That's probably one of the differences. But as far as actually just the way it would look and the way of trying to get to it would be very similar to what we talk about when we talk about prolamin and starch content and starch and availability of that starch. And so we know there's things that breaks that down, and we know that the ensiling process helps and, and the process and the moisture. But you just want to be careful not to just evaluate starch alone. For, for one big component, and we saw this a lot with our data this year, um, is how much moisture makes such a difference. You may have a, a variety that comes in and maybe you've only got a couple samples of it and you look at it and you think, well, that's really poor starch. Well, maybe it was actually taken way too wet. And so now your starch number looks you know, much worse than what it actually is. Or the opposite, if it was taken too dry and your starch number, you think, oh my goodness, that's a 42 starch. Well, in reality, had it been taken at the proper moisture, that starch number would not have been as high. And so it's just so many different things that can throw that off. And so for, for as big of a component as it is, it is very, we need to be very careful and make sure we're looking at a whole picture and there's more and more, t- more tools being created um, that take that into an account as well. And so if we know that, that starch is the biggest driver behind milk production, what is the biggest driver behind components? Uh, that's fiber. Fiber is your biggest driver behind your components. So components being things like butter fat, uh, protein, um, those type of things. More and more, um, you know, not uh, more and more co-ops and, and, and milk processors are actually moving away from paying on volume and actually paying strictly on components. And so it doesn't matter if you bring in an extra 2,000 gallons of milk, they care what components they get. And that's what you're paid on. And so in those situations, maybe your feed looks a little different. Maybe you need a better fiber digestibility product versus necessarily what you're getting out of the starch. And so we've seen that, you know, change quite a bit as well. And it's just as same as starch. Not all fibers created equal. You know, I also heard, you know, Amy Hoy recently talk about how when she first started in the feed business, which I believe she said was 35, 40 years ago, something like that, to balance a ration, they had basically squares, you know, almost like a four square kind of, um, and they would have NDF, which is your neutral detergent fiber, not in, not NDFD, just NDF and a starch number. And that's all they, that's how they have, they built out rations. And so now we, you know, we look and there's so many different evaluations that we can look at with fiber. You know, when you, when you think about fiber uh, of a plant and, and again, stealing this from someone else again, but think about an orange, Okay, so you got you know you've got your peel. That's your outside. That is your lignin. Okay, you don't want to eat that, right? You don't want to eat. I mean, unless you maybe you know take a little off or some zest on a salad or on a dish or something. For the most part, you're not walking around eating an orange peel. That's your lignin component. Think of it in that way when you're talking about a corn plant. Then you have your two other components. Main components um, is cellulose and hemicellulose. So within a corn or within a, I'm sorry, within a, 
uh, orange, think about, you know, so you've, you've peeled your orange. You now have this outside kind of white uh, material that's kind of holding that, that orange slice together, keeps it from just breaking down and falling apart, right? Is it digestible? Yes, you can eat it. It doesn't hurt you. It's not necessarily great. It doesn't, you know, if you were just going to eat it, it probably wouldn't taste all that good. But you could do that, right? Um, that is your cellulose. And then the really digestible portion, so when you when you kind of tear that that white stuff off and you that get into the meat, the middle part of that orange slice, that's your hemicellulose, right? That's very, you know, much higher sugar, much more digestible. But now, that being said, and then if you would take that orange slice and you would just squeeze it, you would actually get the pectin, right? You're going to get that sugar out. But now if I sat there and, and I only drink orange juice all day long, how am I going to feel? Not very good. My stomach's going to kill me. And so we, we need that whole plant. We need that whole orange to be able to use it. That's what, you know, I love to drink my orange juice with a heavy pulp because I love the taste of it. It's my favorite way. And so, so think about that in, back in relation to your plant. You need everything within that. You know, having some lignin is not necessarily the end of the world. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Because one thing you need that plant to stand uh, is you know for whatever time period you need it to stand. But I also don't want so much that it it ends up being a higher percentage than what I desire, and that's just completely undigestible. You also need some of that to be able to create that rumen mat. So that rumen mat that we want in the cow um, to be able you know to to hold those components in and get full use out of them. We don't want something so digestible that it goes through the cow really fast. You know, I know there's still dairies that work with the BMR3 uh, genetic that they have to feed some uh, straw because it goes so fast through the animal. And so when you think about that, you know, a newer number that we look at on the fiber side, that's I, I don't know when it exactly came out, but it's been in since the time I've been in the industry, is UNDFD240. And so that is uh, undigestible neutral detergent fiber digestibility. So... It's looking at the undigestible portion. So it's essentially directly tied to or connected to that lignin number. Um, and so it's kind of examining what is never going to digest, really, essentially. And so I know you're thinking if you're, you know, most so many farmers say, well, 240 hours, that's 10 days. Nothing's going to stay in there 10 days. And that, that's true, but it's an academia number that we use to standardize that. And what we want to see is what kind of value is there. And so if you ever look at a, a feed sample, if we can get that number down into some single digits, maybe slightly higher, that's going to be a good day. Now, your UNDF number can be look a little bit high if you have a bigger plant. Like, for example, master, a lot of master choice varieties can, be, can tend to be a flex or semi-flex variety, meaning that if they're at a lower population, that stock's going to get a little bit bigger. But what you'll see is that, so that UNDF number, UNDFD240 number might look a little higher, but it's actually still a lot of digestible material. A lot of that hemicellulose or that actual, the orange, as we talked about, the little, the pectin sacs within the orange, right? So it's actually the good stuff. And so it's just, that's just something that's changed. You know, there's more, um, more evaluation of that. There's more talk about that. Um, education, I think, is much higher uh, generally across the board. 
But having that being said, as I talked about at the very beginning of the podcast, I've been traveling a ton. I've been doing forage summits. If, if you want to go back a few episodes before this, we kind of talk about what the forage summit is and, and its purpose and name kind of where they're at. We still have some more available but and another online one as well. But I can tell you the feedback that I'm getting is so much on the education. People love the education aspect because they're just not able to find that source. And that brings me to kind of the third component of this is there is less and less good information out there for a dairy farmer to be able to utilize and to grasp, uh, hold up, to learn from. And so one of the biggest parts of my job that I love is educating farmers, uh, particularly, you know, this podcast. If you've listened to previous episodes, we really don't try to make them Master's Choice or Rob Seco commercials. We want them to be uh, to have value and to be uh, something that they can bring forward and so and educate themselves on. So that's what we want to do. So the, the third component where I've seen the biggest changes is in these evaluation tools. So we talked about starch, we talked about fiber, and you know, to and I mentioned a few different, you know, aspects of a test that you can run or or you can look at after you run a test on a forage. Some of these are not I think the easiest way I can say this is there's no one thing you need to look at. If you're only evaluating or making your decisions on one component of a feed test, you're making a mistake. If you're saying, well, you know, I don't care about anything else. I just want a starch number. It's okay for that to be your lead. But if you're not evaluating in a seven-hour starch, if you're not evaluating fiber, if you're not evaluating UNDFD 240, NDFD 30, if you're not looking at all these things and, and having some, some criteria set for what you desire, you, I think you're probably really selling your farm and your cow short of what their potential is. You know, you'd, I don't want you just focused on milk per ton. Milk per ton is, a, is an equation, uh, milk 2006, put up by University of Wisconsin. It's an equation that, that has some value. I mean, there's absolutely some value there. Okay, you want to talk about change? Here's an interesting change. I remember early on in my career with Master's Choice, uh, 2012, maybe 13, something like that, at probably my third World Dairy Expo. Um, Master's Choice sample had won World Dairy Expo that particular year. And I don't remember the specifics, but I think it was like we won it with like 3,400 or 3,500 milk per ton. And we were just so excited that we had a number that high and it just crushed everybody. Well, last year's World Dairy Expo, I'm pretty sure in the standard corn silage division, the high, the, there was nothing under 4,000 milk per ton. Now, my point, am I saying that I think that corn has gotten that much better? I'm not so sure of that across the board. Do I think that people know how to use a test like that, I think they could. And so I think we want to be very careful to just evaluate on just a milk per ton. I think you're really setting yourself up for not necessarily failure, but you're limiting your potential again. Like we, you know, when you, when you're only looking at that, can I, can it be a factor? Absolutely. Can it be, should it be your only factor? Absolutely not. And the same goes for milk per acre. Milk per acre is a number that's created off of the milk per ton. It is created off of the, taking that milk per ton and basically adding in the um, tonnage component to that. And so if your milk per ton number it can be skewed, then your milk per acre can definitely be skewed. Um, or maybe my milk per ton is not very good, but I just have a lot of corn. 
And so my move for acre number can be really high. Again, not bashing on either one of those numbers, not dismissing them, saying they need to be a part of an evaluation, not the whole um, evaluation. And I will say the same for seven-hour starch. And you, if you've listened to the podcast, you've heard me talk about seven-hour starch a lot. Master's Choice you know, has built a very good reputation on, on making seven-hour starch a key component of what we evaluate for. But again, it can't be the only component either. You don't want to just look at that because if I have a, if I, let's assume I take everything at, at, at right moistures, okay? So let's assume the moisture is exactly where we want it. If I have a 40% starch and in vitro seven hour starch number of 62, right? That, that's not great, okay? If I have, but if I have 36% starch, so you're thinking 4% less, right? But I have an, a seven-hour starch number of 74. That's very good. I'm going to end up with utilizing more starch. But on the other side, if I have a, but if I have a 40 uh, starch number and an in vitro seven-hour starch number a little bit higher, but maybe I have a lower total starch number, maybe 36, but my in vitro seven-hour starch is really high. It can maybe not necessarily equal still the, as, as far as actual fed starch. That's what we're really trying to get to. And so you just want to be careful not to just you know look at just one aspect um, when it comes to that. And so so I, if you're working with dairies, um, you know I say this all the time. I say, well, you know, what's your biggest driver? What are you trying to accomplish? Well, I want X number starch. And I say, well, how much of a, how much digestibility starch do you want? And all the, too many times I'm getting a blank look back um, that they just don't know, or it's not something they think about or consider. And so while the value might be a little different depending on how much corn silage I have or how long I'm going to ensile it, at the end of the day, we need to be looking at all of those components and all of those tests. Um, there is a new test coming out uh, through, I believe it's Penn State University is making it. Um, it's looking at organic matter digestibility, so it's actually factoring in uh, starch digestibility aspect within a new calculation and formulation that you're getting. And so that's going to be really neat because that's going to open up some new doors for us as who are trying to evaluate for, for a really good corn silage. And so, so these are all components for you to think about and just wanted to, you know, uh, hopefully I didn't rant too much and, and you stayed interested because I, I think I want to end with giving you, you know, three questions to think about for your operation or for the, for the dairies that you're working with. Um, you know, I think number one is, is the company that I'm working with um, evaluating silage hybrids for, are they evaluating hybrids for silage or just slapping a label on them? You know, that was one of our, my fears, you know, with coming to work uh, for Rob Seco is I didn't want to work for a company that did that. And I didn't know what Rob Seco's process was. It wasn't a bash on them. I just, I know there's too many companies that do that. And so, I would really push if I was you to say, let me see your data. Let me see some of your testing. What is your testing process? Do you have a criteria that something has to make? Or do you just base it on two samples and the fact that the hybrid's really tall or it's got a bunch of grain or whatever it may be? Um, so make sure you're working with a company that is actually truly evaluating silage and not just uh, taking necessarily breeder's notes or something like that to, to put a label of silage on something. Another question is, do I have a plan in place to get the most out of my hybrids to fully utilize their key characteristics? So what I mean by that is, are you actually planning um, your 
your hybrid layout and the order you're going to harvest them. So if I have a uh, 1,000 or let's say 1,000 acres that I plan to, to – I have 1,000 acres of corn. I don't know how much of it I may use for silage. Am I sitting down and I'm making sure that I'm using a, let's say, a master's choice type hybrid, um, and I want that to be the first one I feed because it's going to have the most starch digestibility generally as a rule. And then I want the second, third to be maybe something, maybe it maybe it's maybe still some master's choice, but maybe it's a hybrid that maybe has a higher grain content, but maybe not quite as digestible because I'm going to be able to let it in sile for six months or eight months or something like that. And so just, just really sitting down and evaluating and putting a plan together, not just this, I want this hybrid in this field because of it does better on clay or it does better on sand. Those are, those are absolutely huge factors, but also how do I want to feed them out? How do I want to harvest them um, and, and use that component and view that component as well? Um, if you actually go back and listen to the podcast we just released very recently, about getting fit it's not about getting you know fit within your your health system it's about farm fit planning and the importance of that i would definitely suggest you go back and listen to that if you've not done it and then the last question is am i relying too much on one test aspect to determine the hybrids that i want to use in my operation i just spent you know five minutes or whatever it was talking about don't do that don't just rely on one thing don't just look at starch don't just look at ndft 30 don't just look at milk per ton, milk per acre. You know, make sure you're evaluating and looking closely at these samples. Pay attention to the moisture. That's such a big thing. Uh, you can really, I'll use the word manipulate, not as meaning on purpose, but you can really mess up or manipulate a sample um, if your moisture's way out of whack. And so with all of that, I mean, I think that um, it would be important for you guys as your listeners uh, to evaluate all this. What's changed for you? Send, send me an email. What's changed for you? You've been in the industry two years, five years, 30 years. What's changed for you? I'd love to hear uh, some of your stories, how you've seen this industry changing and, and where you see it going. I see lots of good change uh, coming as well. And I'm seeing newer and newer technology that just blows my mind um, that they're able to do, particularly on the animal health side and micronutrients and microbes within the, the crop side and just uh, really impressive stuff. So, with that, uh, check us out. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, do so. Uh, we'd love that. And uh, we try to drop these every other uh, Wednesday. And then you can go to uh, seedcorn.com for the Master's Choice website. Uh, you can go to robseco.com uh, for the Rob Seco website. And there's actually a forage division page on there now where you can access some look at some of the other forage products that we carry with Rob Seco, be it alfalfa, sorghum, uh, forage sorghum, a few different components and products as well. And so take some time to do that. Check out YouTube, check out Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever it may be. So with that, I hope everyone has a great day.